Hey everyone, we're back. It's Hit Factory. Interesting lineup today. Becoming a rarity, but it's how we started the show. Just like all narrative cinema eventually becomes just two people in a room talking, <laughs> so too does this show. We haven't done this in a while. I know. It's, I'm very awkward about it. It feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's back to the origins of Hit Factory. It's becoming more and more rare for us to do the show this way, but the lineup today is just Carly and I. And uh, for good reason, I think. Maybe not entirely intentional, but I think it will offer us an opportunity to maybe not be motivated by the opinions of a guest or to be persuaded by somebody coming to the show having picked the film because of their admiration for it. Um, because today we're talking about Wes Anderson and specifically his debut feature, Bottle Rocket from 1996 co-written with Owen Wilson, starring Owen Wilson, the introduction of all three of the Wilson brothers. Yes, there are three, in case you didn't know. And when we approached this film, I came to it with the hope that it might become, Carly, one of your favorites in Wes Anderson's canon, knowing that you are not a Wes head. You don't have a particular uh, affinity for his work, his oeuvre as a whole, I know. Um, but I know that you love The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Love that film. And I was thinking that this would be a good entry point uh, into some of the earlier work, one that you hadn't seen before, and one that you might walk away loving and even declaring maybe as your favorite or one of your favorites. You pitched it to me thusly. I, I did. <laughs> and I will say that, uh, just to spoil it, Right off the bat here. On that front, the experiment failed, I think. <laughs> Have we decided that? Well, I thought I thought that maybe it's not. I, I think that Zissou's probably still remains uh, your, your favorite yes. in, the, in the canon. But if we do some quick maths, uh, as, as Big Shaq as would Big say. As Big Shaq would say. Your claim that, or your hope that it would be one of my favorite Wes Anderson films, like purely from a numbers standpoint, is is correct. Totally possible <laughs> because prior to that, I only had one favorite Wes Anderson right. film, and that was The Life Aquatic. So, and, and were the others to you complete duds? Um, should we get into this now? We might as well talk about it on on the top here because so. Yes, I think we should. Let's let's talk. I'm totally fine with let's that. Let's talk about it really quickly because I want this to be the introduction to uh, maybe sort of the guiding ethos of this conversation. We're not here to dish on Wes. We're also not here to stroke uh, the egos of all the Wes heads out there. I think that we're going to approach something maybe more in the middle ground. We can appreciate that. We love the dialectic. <laughs> And so, yeah, I, I think we should talk maybe a little bit about our relationship to Wes Anderson before we get in to Bottle Rocket. Yeah, let's do it. I think it's important to note that Wes Anderson has been in the discourse, capital D, lately because of The French Dispatch, his latest film, or as some guy called it the Paris Dispatch. That's that some guy being uh, one Matt Iglesias. <laughs> oh, yes, that's fact. right. Yeah. He just wants his movies set in in modern times. You know, like he's frustrated that films for the first time in their 
century plus history are all period pieces. Yeah. That, that they're about times that aren't our own. Yeah. That's not a thing. I I agree with him a little bit that, you know, I, I wish that the auteurs would maybe make a movie set in 2021. It doesn't have to be people like making TikToks, but it would be nice to have a, a movie set in our present day at some point from a Tarantino or a Scorsese or someone. Yeah, I I think it's actually one of the reasons a lot of people uh, find themselves really drawn to series like Succession. It's a it's a fantastic series, but it's also reflecting something of the current moment back to you that period pieces certainly can do. In fact, you know we um, have an entire show based on the premise that much of the media from the '90s is reflecting things back to us that we are fe- seeing and feeling today. Um, but yes, so Wes has been in the discourse lately and it has offered up a lot of opportunities to revisit points of conversations that I've had over the years with many friends and people about Wes Anderson. Um, because I have never really been a fan and it's not that I don't appreciate what he's doing or admire his craft, his attention to detail, and the stories that he's telling, I have just never been emotionally invested or moved by his work. And that is problematic for a lot of people. I don't really know why. <laughs> well, there, So one of the things that I think is really frustrating about Wes Anderson discourse, and it, it, it cycles and gets, I think, perpetually more noxious every time mm-hmm. a Wes Anderson film drops. It it borders very dangerously close to to like the obsessiveness of a lot of fandoms that film Twitter and and film writers generally, you know, egg on and and make fun of. Yeah, there's a lot of like pot kettle black stuff happening yes, with Wes Anderson totally. where and I'm I, like this feels this feels like a thing that you make fun of a lot. And I think one of the reasons for that is that so often it feels like the people who are trying to criticize Wes Anderson aren't able to, I think, articulate exactly what it is about him that doesn't feel good to them about the movies. And, you know, John Gans took a crack at this uh, for, for Gawker in like the last week and wrote what I thought was actually a really articulate, thoughtful piece about... Uh, the issues that that he has with Wes Anderson in his later period, um, while also praising you know his run from Bottle Rocket through Life Aquatic, his earlier stuff, um, as having a, a different kind of sincerity, while also uh, also buying into also also evoking that same kind of artifice and storybook quality and fantasy narrative style. Um, I, I thought he did a good job with that, mm-hmm. and of course he was he was pretty much mauled by by like film Twitter. Um, who who immediately reduced down the argument to like, oh, people just making fun of Anderson or, or people hating Anderson because they say he's too twee. I fucking hate the word twee. Yeah, we all do. Um, but I, I think that it's, you know, largely that there is a language that has been commodified by film Twitter to defend Anderson that they have turned into a reductive sort of assessment of what people are saying when they criticize him. Yeah, and I thought the Gawker piece actually came closest to a critique that felt near to something that I could relate to. And I didn't agree with everything he had to say, but, you know, in terms of my own perspective on Wes Anderson, 
what has been frustrating for me about conversations about his work is probably the thing that's frustrating for the people that have been defending his work when I've been when we've been talking about it which is that I too am one of those people that haven't ever really been able to place what it is about his work that I don't connect with or that I don't enjoy as much as everyone else seems to and so you know I've had friends over the years be like oh you're you're just not getting it like you're just you're missing it Carly I remember having like a really intense conversation with someone I was dating at at a a bar one time and like we kind of got into a fight about Wes Anderson about Wes Anderson (laughs) um and Wes Anderson is not worth fighting over, no, by the way, totally guys. Not. Like, but like this was he makes also... he makes really great movies, but don't don't lose friends or loved ones. Over this guy this. was this guy was like looking for fights uh, most of the time. <laughs> um, but but I was actually more frustrated with the fact that I couldn't articulate what it was about his work that I I um, that I found challenging. And in general, that's something that I don't do well with when I can't express myself in some way. I'm quick to get angry. And so that is why Wes Anderson, I think, has always been like a challenging topic for me because I'm like, uh, I know there's something here. I just don't have the language to describe what it is that situates my perspective the way that the way that it is. Um, we've had this conversation a couple times recently in a few of the episodes we've recorded. And it's an idea that we come back to time and time again. And that is you can not necessarily like a person's body of work and still engage with what they make and still appreciate the effort or the craftsmanship or whatever it may be. And that's very much how I feel about Wes Anderson. But for some reason, that gets lost and most people, when Wes Anderson comes up, who are staunchly defending him, read there's like you either love him obsessively and anything that isn't that is hatred and I'm like no I'm I'm actually closer to your position than you think I am yeah you're just lukewarm on most of it I'm just like Luke Wilson warm I'm I'm Luke Wilson no he's not lukewarm (laughs) he's very sweet um yeah all of this to say I was excited to watch this movie precisely because I have been interested in finding a piece of his lexicon that I connect with more than I have other other films of his. That being said, The Life Aquatic is one of my favorite films, not just one of my favorite Wes Anderson films. It's gorgeous. It's the only Wes Anderson movie I've ever cried watching. It's it's a word that I say a lot, it's resplendent. And, um, and so like, that's the other thing that I come back to. Uh, he's an artist. He's going to have stuff that I like. He's going to have stuff that I don't like. And any creative who is worth their weight in salt is going to have a body of work that isn't all hits. I think that part of the frustration and, and part of what makes the discourse surrounding Wes Anderson so tedious is that demand to love all of it uh, or to love the right ones, you know, which is weird because I think that if you get enough Wes Anderson fans in a room or even people who like most of his work, you will not find any one person ranking his films in the same order. Like there are no like 
universally agreed upon bests, right? There's no like godfather in there or anything like that. You know, it's it, it varies. Some people say Moonrise Kingdom. Some people say Darjeeling Limited. Some people say Life Aquatic. I would say, gasp, Bottle Rocket or Rushmore even, Royal Tenenbaums, like his earliest work. Some people, uh, you know, think that Grand Budapest is one of his best ones. And I think it's okay for there to be hits and misses, like you said. I think it's okay to disagree on these. I think it's okay to even go as far as to maybe not like most of Anderson's work. Well, and the other thing I'll say is that for an artist with such a specific and distinct style, it is unreasonable to think that everyone will enjoy it. Absolutely. I think that so many people perceive Anderson as some sort of like very populist filmmaker because it is generally pretty whimsical, light, funny, fair. You know, it's it's stuff that is relatively digestible, but it's not for everyone. And it's very aestheticized. So like, you know, even if it is light and lovely and, you know, full of pastiche, it is an intensely aesthetic exercise on his part. And so it is going to cultivate a response. That's why he does what he does. Yes, absolutely. And if you actually want to embrace Wes Anderson as an artist, I think it's important to be okay with people not liking Wes Anderson. I will say that one thing I saw a few weeks ago that for me felt like the inflection point of the moment the Wes Anderson discourse reemerged online. <laughs> so like we have this girl to thank for it, I think. Um, some like writer for the New York Times or New Yorker I think or something. I, I think I know what you're about to say. <laughs> she basically was like, I can't think of a worse moment in our history for a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> and everyone just like dogpiled the shit out of her. Yeah. And, you know, not a good take for a lot of reasons. One of one of which being that the Royal Tenenbaums was released in October, October of 2001. 2001, which someone <laughs> immediately pasted the wiki page and was like, yo, girl. Um, I don't want to dissect that argument because it's not worth it. What I think is interesting about that perspective is kind of what we're talking about, about Wes, which is that she has this view of him as a purely whimsical aesthetic creative with nothing important to say mm-hmm. right yeah um and whether that's right or wrong I, I don't think it's right for the record but that she can have that perspective I think is one of the things that makes him so divisive because there are people who very much do not feel that way and then there are people who are like it's Wes Anderson and it's Twee and it's like dogs and whatever the fuck else. Cardigans <laughs> and, and foxes and foxes and shit. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that I think in and of itself is a really telling kind of bullion cube of the the binaries that surround his work. Yes. One of the things that I think is so fascinating about him as an artist is that in order to like even begin to to articulate something about why his style doesn't work for you as a person, as a viewer, requires a certain understanding of filmic language and a Mm -hmm. certain understanding of what he's doing. It's too simple to simply say it's too stylized. It's too simple, I think, to say like, oh, it's like over-manufactured and produced. You know, there's, there's a lot of specificity to not just 
that, but but the way in which he is overproducing and aestheticizing his his work that I think makes things challenging, even and especially for people who love cinema. It is it's very different. It's very specific. I think that's why a lot of film Twitter gets mad at the critiques because a lot of the critiques mine previously in this bar with this man did not contain a literacy of the filmic language that you're talking about. And so it's just me kind of like throwing darts at a wall being like, I don't know. It's just like a thing that I feel. Yeah. And it's easy to gatekeep when, yes. when people can't quite define what it is about it. It's just, it's just a thing. It's an, it's an unknowable, unnameable thing. Yes. That is just Wes Anderson and his style. Yes. Um, but we'll get back to this at the end of the show. We should talk a little bit about Bottle Rocket. Let's. Um, we already hinted a little bit at maybe, Carly, your general feelings about the movie, but I would like to hear in more explicit detail how you felt about Bottle Rocket. Okay. Um, so <laughs> something, <laughs> something that has happened in near every Wes Anderson movie I've ever watched, I fell asleep. <laughs> The first time. Just the first time. Just the first time. You did watch it all the way through eventually. Just the first time. Um, (laughs) You know, we can get into that. I think there are a lot of variables there. Uh, One of which is that I've been going to bed at like three in the morning every night for the last... Outside outside factors. uh, Other uh, other stuff going on. Um, my, My overall take on this movie is it is one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies now. Um... As I said, I really only had one before, <laughs> but no, I have, I have some others that I like, but Life Aquatic is, is by far and away my favorite. Um, but this has absolutely made the list now of Wes Anderson movies that, um, I feel very affectionate toward. I think this movie is strange. I think this movie is tonally, um, awkward on purpose, which makes it hard to digest but I also think that makes it interesting and kind of keeps you on your toes as a viewer and the thing for me that I'll say as the real headline is the thing that everyone has said about this film when we've brought it up which is that Owen Wilson is magnificent in this film and I should also say not a fan of Owen Wilson like Again, I don't like loathe him. I don't love him. He's just like not for me. And a lot of his work that has made him famous, not bagging it in any way, but it's it's very much a certain character. He is playing a certain type of person that is very affected. And, you know, it works for me with Vince Vaughn. It doesn't work for me so much with Owen Wilson. In this film, he seems the most human I've ever seen him on screen in anything. Um, even in Tenenbaums, I still feel like he is very much affecting a certain type of Owen Wilson mm-hmm. character. He's just magnetic and silly and charismatic in this movie and um, and feels the most genuine, the most organic, and the most endearing that I've ever seen him feel or felt him be before. He's completely captivating the entire time. Yes. Um, James L. Brooks, the filmmaker responsible for broadcast news, as good as it gets, other hits, uh, who serves as an executive producer on this film and kind of became sort of a 
a teacher to Wes Anderson in the time that they kind of hit it big uh, and started working on this first feature, wrote an essay about the journey to getting this film to screen uh, and said something about Owen Wilson specifically along the lines of that he was incapable of delivering a dishonest moment. Mm -hmm. And I find that interesting now knowing his body of work and, you know, he has done some thoughtful, interesting roles, most of them under the direction of Anderson. Yes. I, I think of his role in Tenenbaums, like you said, also Ned Plimpton, his character uh, with like the thick Kentucky accent in Life Aquatic. Mm -hmm. uh, he was really good in Darjeeling Limited as well. Um, that one paired up interestingly with like him in the movie being a uh, recovering suicide attempt. Yeah. Uh, very, very close to his real life. Uh, encounter with with a similar circumstance which is kind of odd and and looms over that movie now a little bit but um yeah he just he just feels more genuine here than he ever has even playing like this cartoon character he is so childish but in a way that's like very you, you don't you don't you have sympathy for him you don't have uh pity you know, and he just, he walks that tightrope so, so well in this he movie. He really does. And it's a thin one. It's a thin one to walk. When you think about the circumstances of this film, and I, I think I'll have you synopsize it briefly because I won't do a good job. Um, but when you think about kind of the extreme circumstances that they find themselves throughout this movie and for him to be able to deliver a performance that feels very textured and at the same time like wacky and and goofy is a testament to the work that he's doing so you know for me I like this film um and I will say that one of the reasons I think I like it more than some of his other work is precisely because it is his first piece and what's interesting to me about it is knowing what the rest of his body of work looks and feels like coming back to this very late in the game and his career and actually going back to his first film. I found it a really fascinating watch to kind of see the early inklings directionally and aesthetically of the, a lot of the things that show up in his later films. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're all on display here. You know, that, uh, that sort of flat, sort of composition of his frames, you know, creating everything in sort of this sort of like parallel flat backgrounded surfaces he uses a lot. Um a lot of a lot of movement to his camera in this one, more so than I think he he will use later. Mm -hmm. His his camera tends to stick on sort of like a like an X and a Y axis and just kind of turns and up, down, left or right later on. Some good tracking shots obviously in his later work, but this one like has real kind of energetic handheld stuff it follows people as they're like being chased and pursued it's, running through hallways on the hoods of cars mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's there's a little bit more of like an energy to it it feels a little bit more like young amateur filmmaker in the same way though that a lot of the inspiration for Wes Anderson and the influences that he carried into his work uh did as well like you know the it's very evocative of the French New Wave, people like Godard and Truffaut and, and these people who he was quoting often. In fact, I, th I think like the tagline for this movie uh, was something like Reservoir Dogs meets Breathless or something like oh, that. Oh, wow. Um, so there there was a lot of play off of the, the New Wave inspiration as well as like the early like 90s uh, indie cinema that like Tarantino and 
folks like Robert Rodriguez were popularizing. Um, but for me, you know, I was probably 14 when I saw this movie for the first time. Um, and I haven't watched it in about a decade. And I carry it carried a, a lot of weight for me when I was younger. It was a very important movie. I loved it. I think I've watched this one more than any other Wes Anderson movie. I've probably seen it 20 times. Why was it important for you? I just, I think it was because so many people at the time were getting into Wes Anderson. I, like a lot of people our age, came to Wes Anderson for the first time in The Life Aquatic. Some people were a little bit earlier with Royal Tenenbaums, but The Life Aquatic was the first one I remember being like actively into movies as it was being released. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And at the time, people spoke very highly of The Royal Tenenbaums. People spoke very highly of Rushmore specifically. I was a, you know, little swoopy bang, tight jean, studded belt emo kid as well. And I cannot tell you the number of bands who directly or indirectly have names, have song titles, album titles, referencing Rushmore specifically. Mm. So I found my way to Bottle Rocket. And I think, you know, largely wanting to be something of a contrarian, I decided that was going to be one of my favorites. And then I watched it and it ended up just being on its own terms anyway, that it was just one that felt alive and kinetic and interesting and weird in a way that you could even see slowly start to degrade over that that much narrower window of Wes Anderson's work you know even just from 96 to 2004 with Life Aquatic you could see it getting more refined you could see it becoming a little less messy a little bit less rough around the edges sanding things down and I just liked it it just felt it felt a little scuzzy, but also had like his very specific, unique penchant for for oddness and and deadpan. And it remains, I think. I I think I would still put it at, probably in my top three, if not still my number one. You and Steely Dan. Me and Steely Dan. That's right. <laughs> uh, yes, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker on the on the eve of of Anderson uh, beginning his shoot for the Darjeeling Limited wrote what is obviously a joke uh, letter. To Wes Anderson, but uh, Fagan and Becker do cite Bottle Rocket as their their favorite, the the tip top they of do their indeed. enjoyment. <laughs> so nice little piece of internet detritus. Yes, uh, I mean shout out right. If the Dan likes the movie, you're in good company. So, uh, but we should we should get into synopsizing the film. And as you said, I, I think that I will take a stab at it. I took a cue from our friend Jacob Bacharach and uh, actually penned. Penned a synopsis this time. Oh, you did indeed. I did indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Away we go. The film opens as Anthony Adams, played by Luke Wilson, leaves a stint at a voluntary psychiatric hospital in the Arizona desert with the, quote, help, end quote, of his artless yet ambitious best friend Dignan, played by IRL, a Wilson brother, Owen. The two set out on an elaborate 75-year plan devised by Dignan that begins with orchestrating a series of heists in order to curry the favor of Mr. Abe Henry, the owner of a landscaping company, The Lawn Wranglers, that acts as a front for his professional thieving operation. The pair enlist the aid of their extremely rich friend Bob, played by Robert Musgrave, who is perpetually victimized by his older brother, Future Man, played by the third Wilson brother, Andrew, in order to supply them with a car, act as their getaway driver, and purchase the largest caliber pistol they can find. The gang then knock off a modest bookstore and strip mall, go on the lam, and shack up at a roadside motel. 
It is here that Anthony quickly falls for and attempts to court, in the creepiest way possible, the housekeeper Inez, who spends her evening practicing English. The plan to lay low quickly comes undone as Bob flees the coop, taking his car in the middle of the night in order to go home and bail future man out of jail on a drug charge for a marijuana crop that Bob has been secretly cultivating in his backyard. As Dignan attempts to steal a new vehicle for his and Anthony's escape, Anthony is rejected by Inez, who, through the translation of a young dishwasher named Rudy, tells him that she cannot upend her life and leave with him. Dignan successfully hotwires an ancient Porsche, picks up Anthony, and in a twist of dramatic irony, receives a message from Rudy that he fails to understand as a translation from Inez. Tell Anthony I love him. Shortly after their escape vehicle breaks down on the side of the road, Anthony and Dignan have a falling out when Anthony reveals that he has given the remaining money from the robbery to Inez, leading to Dignan punching Anthony in the face and the two going their separate ways. Months later, Anthony is on a strict daily regimen, holding down three jobs, exercising regularly, and living with Bob in his expansive mansion, when who should appear but Dignan. The two make quick amends, and Dignan introduces Anthony to Mr. Henry, played by the wonderful James Kahn, and his crew, including Applejack, Rowboat, and Safecracker Kumar. Anthony is eventually coerced into aiding Dignan with a new heist alongside Mr. Henry's associates. They once again enlist Bob, don conspicuous yellow jumpsuits, and execute a heist of a warehouse for Hinkley Cold Storage. Before the heist, Anthony learns of Rudy's message from Inez, calls her, and they both gleefully profess their love for one another. The next day, the heist is underway. The plan tears apart at the seams almost instantly, with every possible element of the plan going wrong, leading to the gang fleeing and Dignan being apprehended by the police. In a final coda, Anthony and Bob visit Dignan in prison and reveal that the plot was an elaborate double-cross to occupy the men while Mr. Henry robbed Bob's house, making away with nearly everything. Anthony also reveals that he plans to see Inez soon. In the film's final moments, Dignan begins rattling off an escape plan and tells his friends to get into position for a getaway. After a tense moment, the two realize Dignan is just joking. He then says to Anthony, Isn't it funny that you used to be in the nuthouse and now I'm in jail? As he walks back into the prison. Beautifully done. End of the synopsis. We're going to definitely cut that one down a little bit. I don't think we need to. <laughs> I thought that was wonderful. Um, where to start with this one? I guess we can talk about the the beginnings of this, as it is also the beginnings of the careers of three stalwart Hollywood presences now, uh, Luke and Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson. As we already mentioned, Owen wrote the script along with Wes, and the film itself is based on a 13-minute short film that they made on 16 millimeter in black and white that uh, garnered some acclaim and even screened at Sundance in 1992, the year it was released. Um, it caught the attention of, as we already mentioned as well, James L. Brooks, the director who took Wes and the gang under his wing and decided we're going to make a movie. From Brooks's perspective in this essay that I already mentioned, uh, they were extremely cocksure. I, Wes Anderson seems to be someone who came in uh, exuding confidence despite the fact that the movie would eventually uh, receive a ton of really, really bad test viewings and eventually was left DOA at the box office by by Columbia when they released it. 
the thing that I think is most interesting about it is that he was ever allowed to make another one. Like this is kind of an inflection point for a lot of young directors who don't get to do another piece. They're kind of one and done. Um, and especially like young, more out there kind of like indie directors, they don't, they don't get to do a rush more. And yet somehow Wes and Owen and the gang were able to do a Rushmore. Why do you think that is? I have no idea. From the way that Brooks tells it, it seems that that Owen and and Wes Anderson specifically uh, were very professional presences in the room. They were people who kind of showed up and acted like they had done it before, even if they had no idea what they were doing. And for whatever reason, I think that they were able to establish and build really meaningful relationships with Hollywood and with producers and and people who had money, even though the film that they were making didn't do well. Mm. Um, But I I honestly have no idea. It it sort of remains a mystery, but I'm glad that it went that way. We have, you know, now a body of 10 films from Wes Anderson when uh, that's not how it usually happens for directors like this. I just have no idea. I mean, how did Grace get so cynical? Look, where, I can't answer that question right now. All I'm concerned from? about is getting you back in the car, man. This conclusion Let's get back in the car point. where you can settle She thinks down. I'm a failure. What? She said you're a failure? Not about me. It's just, what has she ever accomplished with her life that's so great, man? Nothing. Nothing. Wait, you don't have to do anything, I'm not man. saying that she has to look up to me at all. I'm not saying that. Don't worry about it. Maybe she should. Why not? Stop. She's stop she for a second. Will you stop for a second and look at this? Oh, no. I learned more in the two months I spent with Mr. Henry and his crew than I learned in 15 years of academic study. Fact, I can guarantee you after Mr. Henry sees us pull this job, he's going to take a personal interest in our future. Fact, Mr. Henry drives fact, a Jaguar. Fact, Dignan, the picture's not doing it for me right now. Just, well, is the fact that I'm trying to do it do it for you? This is also a Texas movie. Uh, it was shot in and around Dallas. All these folks met while they were attending school at the University of Texas at Austin. I don't know about you, Carly, but it bears in my mind whenever I think about it now quite a few similarities aesthetically and thematically to Richard Linklater's Slacker. Completely. Not just for being a debut feature, uh, not just because Owen Wilson and Linklater have very similar affects. Uh, we don't get to hear Owen Wilson say reality in this, but I, I would be surprised if he didn't say it in a way that sounded very similar yep. to to Dickie Linklater. Yes. But there's a thematic through line here as well. You know, when we talked with our, our good f- friend, uh, Robbie Raymond, about Slacker, we talked about sort of this, this ennui, this sort of like malaise and listlessness that the, the youth of that generation we're feeling, particularly as it pertains to the late 80s into the early 90s. I think here we see an extension of that same ennui now with a group that is a little bit younger and coming of age within the first half of this neoliberal project within the end of history. And the movie plays out thusly. It is definitely people from a a slightly higher class or or socioeconomic background in terms of like the characters but that same sense of what the hell are we supposed to do with ourselves pervades all of it and you know while we were watching the movie you asked me you're like why why are they even doing this why are they planning these highest why are they like knocking off a, a a bookstore and the only answer that i could come up with is they're extremely bored 
and have no idea what to do. Yeah, and it's a privilege to be bored, right? Extremely, yes. It is a privileged position that they are operating from where they can sit around in someone's backyard at a pool and talk about how they had a mental breakdown when someone asked them if they wanted to do a water sport and then they got to go to some (laughs) voluntary, like, you know mental reprieve hospital right it's it's a privilege even to get to stay at a voluntary hospital for an extended stay of time even get to stay at a voluntary hospital uh, where you can detox and you know run in the desert and do all the things that luke wilson's character got to do um and that's something we talked about on the slacker episode uh that i found like more sort of abrasive in this film um because while Slacker is very much still focusing on, you know, a predominantly white, uh, younger, middle class population of people who have the room and the space to slack, it's still the nascent stages of that that kind of rebellion. Yep. Um, and and here it's it's a little bit more noxious, right? Because these guys are, you know, in their early 20s. Um, they have a lot of money, uh, or their parents do, um, and a lot of time. And so everything feels like a game to them. And it's one of the things that tonally that I think makes this movie interesting, but is also something that kind of kept me at arm's length. Um, and I think reminded me of another movie. The two films I, I consistently kept sort of triangulating uh, with this film as I was watching were Slacker and Swingers. Mm, Yep, definitely. Swingers came out in October of 1996, so after this film. But these two films have so many things in common, uh, not just aesthetically, but also sort of from like a narrative arc perspective. Both are following a group of young men who are kind of just like restless and don't know what to do with themselves. And so are kind of having these adventures and, you know, going on these like capers, right? And being sort of childish about their decisions and their impulses. Um, And there's a lot of open space in, in these films. And that open space to me also feels reflective of this feeling, this sort of emotional headspace we are talking about where there is room for these these boys these men to be listless and to muse and to flail and run and you know shoot rockets literally and figuratively and it's interesting to see to see a movie like this and not just toss it off as like a failed coming of age story or another teen movie, right? That's not what these films are. I think they demonstrate very aptly the moment in the 90s when a very specific class and race of people got to be this kind of person. Right. They get to be aimless. And, you know, I think that Linklater's film shows a young, mostly working class, but still relative, you know, academic. Like they are, after after all, in Austin, right? They're at the University of Texas. But the ways in which the alienation pervades 
that group. There's uh, an unsettled quality to it. They're constantly in motion. It shifts between characters at a, a frenzy and a pace that is like almost hard to keep track of. Like you forget half of the characters by the time you leave the theater, uh, while the other ones remain, you know, like profoundly imprinted into your brain. And Bottle Rocket seems to be a movie that is about that same sense of alienation, but the way in which it pervades the youth culture of like people who actually, as you said, get to be layabouts, get to do nothing. And I'll say to take that one step further, I think Swingers was successful because it sort of takes that and then makes it sexy, right? Yeah, absolutely. And neither Slacker nor this film, Bottle Rocket, really attempt to do that. I think the the former two films um, sort of situate you in a little bit more of the discomfort and the awkwardness and the questions. And it's not that Swingers... Um, doesn't have questions and, and you know, doesn't have disappointments. It just has a more comfortable conclusion to But it, it has more comfortable conclusions and there are there is a swagger to that film that I think allowed it to uh, be more accessible and relatable to a lot of people. Yeah, interesting that that one also was a, you know, smash success and ushered in the, you know, the, the new voices and talents of John Favreau and Vince Vaughn while this movie was dead on arrival basically. Um, I mean, likewise with, with Linklater's. Linklater's at least played Sundance. Apparently, even after playing, e- even after the short film got into Sundance, Sundance did not accept Bottle Rocket mm-hmm. as an entry that year. Um, I don't know if it's just that they didn't like the movie or what what it was, but the film was like a, you know, a small indie that made it to theaters without carrying any accolades or any presentations at a festival, which are usually the things that garner good word of mouth and and get people to to sort of see these things you know and that just didn't happen here and i could also see this movie being difficult to market to a 1996 movie going audience impossible to market and i think that there were some people who were privy to what it was trying to do i think some people understood its charms wes anderson tells a story in retrospect to noah bombach another challenging director of a similar ilk um but he tells this story of test audiences seeing Bottle Rocket and getting heaps of negative feedback. And then one that was left by this young woman that was like an essay of all of the things that she saw that were rewarding about the movie, all of the things that she saw as positives, and the like excitement that she felt having seen something that felt fresh and interesting. And Wes, you know, sort of went to the went to Brooks and and the the group, you know, the, the Wilsons, and was like, "This is our audience. Like, we just have to find, you know, like five hundred thousand more of these yes. guys." <laughs> um, but he he also, you know, uh, he uh, adds a, a coda to that story that uh, I, this woman later met him uh, around the time that Rushmore was becoming a big success, and said, "I was at one of your first screenings of Bottle Rocket," and <laughs> the way he tells it, he says. I know who you are. Yes, I 100% know who you are. And and called her out I've as... I've read your letters. Yeah, as, as the young woman who like left this like very thoughtful uh, essay on on why this movie is special. But yes, you're right. I, I, I think one of the things about this movie is it's, it's difficult to market, as you said. It has a, a rather kind of sad conclusion to mm-hmm. it. Like it does not offer easy, commodifiable, neat, tidy answers to that feeling and sense of alienation that young men were feeling. 
Um, but one of the things that I do appreciate about this movie and one of the reasons I think it remains one of my favorite Wes Anderson's is because it's one of the few that you could actually make the case for uh, as that message being the case, you know, on, on purpose, deliberately. I feel yes. like, I feel like, and, and John Gans says this in his piece for Gawker that we already mentioned, that Wes has gotten a little soft on his characters, that there's sort of this uh, elation, there's sort of this like sweetness and gentleness with characters in these positions of, you know, kind of halt bourgeois sort of lifestyles and, and almost sort of sees it with this reverence. In Bottle Rocket, it feels like he's actually taking a shot at it. You know, he's maybe recognizing their position uh, within that socioeconomic framework, uh, and and then pointing out the absurdity of the restlessness of being a young person with nothing to do and thinking that a life of crime is the answer. He literally puts one of his main characters from the outset of the movie in an insane asylum. Yes, <laughs> like he he is absolutely. I I have to think that in this movie he is making that case purposefully and in his later films I think one of the things that I find challenging is they they feel too much like they are intent on the personal story without kind of looking at the ways in which the personal is always political and I don't I don't know that like Every movie, you know, has to have a political message. That's not even really what I'm I'm asking of him or wanting of him. But I do think there is like a pedestaling of this sort of intimate landscape with with characters that sometimes rather than bring me in actually walls me out. I think there's an argument to be made that Bottle Rocket is the closest thing Wes Anderson has ever made to a political film. You know, even with something like Grand Budapest actually taking place within a moment of political upheaval, yes. it, it just backgrounds the human story mm-hmm. at the front of it. There is a thematic necessity for that. You know, a lot of it is about this uh, sort of aging way of life coming into stark focus and contrast in, in the wake of political unrest. But this is the only one I think that tries to make anything approaching a statement about that rather than making it... Uh, something internalized and and something that defines the character. You know, it, it doesn't have much to say about it. I, th- I think it kind of ends on a, a question mark the same way it begins. But at least it is identifying something. If it's not able to name it, it's at least doing the same thing that a lot of movies of this era were doing, which is tapping into the ennui, tapping into the unrest and saying, there's something here, what is it? Totally agree. Why'd you do it, man? Dignan, I don't really think you know what I was going through back there. Please don't lay that on me now, man, because I'm not interested in hearing any of that. Did it ever occur to you that your old pal Dignan might enjoy a great stay at some mental hospital out in the middle of nowhere? Going running at night, getting a tan with a bunch of beautiful girls? Did you ever think about that? What do you think Dignan was doing that whole time you were out there, man? I told you Dignan got fired. Out on his ass. But you never thought about that, did you? No. So in the end, it's easier just to think about yourself than to think about Dignan. Okay. Dignan, come on. I thought I was supposed to be the one who was a little crazy, you know? 
on a much more topical note, uh, the performances in here are all wonderful. Mm-hmm. We've already mentioned Owen Wilson, who gets pretty much like one laugh out loud line every two or three minutes. I really like Luke Wilson in this movie too. I mm-hmm. think that he's very genuine and sweet, despite, as I mentioned in the synopsis, the fact that his courting of Inez, the housekeeper, uh, is extremely creepy and and approaching quite problematic. The whole time we were watching that unfold, I was just like, this is weird as shit. It's interesting that this doesn't <laughs> ever get talked about. No, uh, it doesn't. Well, and, and what's funny too is, you know, like the way that Wes Anderson tells it and, and Owen Wilson too, I think that they were much more comfortable in the space of developing the buddy comedy and had a really hard time finding their way through the relationship. The romance is totally awkward in this movie. It's very, very awkward. It's uncomfortable even. And like I said, I hadn't seen this movie for nigh a decade, you know, maybe longer. And when we got to this point, I too kind of like buckled a little bit and and tensed up because it is, it's weird. Um, For those who are listening to this without seeing the film, he essentially waits for Inez, the housekeeper, to arrive at the door of their apartment he stays and sort of follows her around the room as she tidies up and then he follows her to all of the successive rooms on her route for housekeeping that day uh, even going in while strangers are still occupying the room talking to her despite the fact that she can't understand most of what he's saying because she's not a native english speaker he asks to keep a picture of her sister that she has in her locket that she's wearing yeah he draws like weird pictures after like one meeting with her. Um, even the scene that's meant to be played kind of sweetly at the pool where they're both swimming and they kind of move in for a kiss feels very one-sided in terms of the dynamic. It seems like he is forcing it. He asks if he can kiss her. She doesn't really give a response because she can't because she doesn't really understand what he's asking for. Uh, and then they kiss anyway. <laughs> You know, the fact that the film rewards this with her, you know, professing her love to Anthony is the part of the movie that feels the least genuine. So I have like myriad observations about this romance, and I don't know that any of them together make a coherent uh, argument, but I'll I'll share them regardless. There is a way in which I think we are meant to read this romance in a way that we're often meant to read romances in like rom-coms or um, sort of lighter dramatic fare where we are presented with a sort of villainous partner, right? A villainous romantic opposite um, to a protagonist. And then we are presented with someone who is essentially the opposite of that person and who we are meant to understand as better for them, like the right person for them, like true love, right? A signifier for true love. We see this very clearly in movies like You've Got Mail, mm-hmm. right? With yep. Parker Posey's character right? and then Meg Ryan, who whatever. Um, <laughs> so this movie gives us a little bit of that, right? In, in that scene early on when they're at Bob's house, they're sitting in the backyard and Luke Wilson's character is talking about how he ended up at an asylum. I'm just going to call it that. I don't, it's sure. like more like a Betty Ford, like <laughs> chill out for rich people clinic. Yeah. But. It's a very, it's a very <laughs> glamorous sort of like rehab facility almost. Um, And he's recounting that 
to to a friend of his who we now understand is his former girlfriend. A friend of his former girlfriend's Elizabeth is her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, his former partner, I think. So you go to school in Arizona, right? No, I was in the hospital. Oh, what for? I went nuts. He's kidding. He's kidding. He didn't go nuts. Thing. How did it happen? Do you really want to know? Yes, I really do. One morning, over at Elizabeth's beach house, she asked me if I'd rather go water skiing or lay out. And I realized that not only did I not want to answer that question, but I never wanted to answer another water sports question or see any of these people again for the rest of my life. Three days later, I was on my way out to the desert, and that was that. You're really complicated, aren't you? I try not to be. So we're presented with this situation that is, um, you know, very much entrenched in an upper class landscape that we're meant to to know he feels some sort of allergy to. Right. And then later he falls in love with a literal cleaning woman Mm -hmm. who is brown and working class and the the romance is for all intents and purposes as you know a layman watching this uh from a purely topical perspective like that's the signifier we need to know that it's the it it is a true romance right that it's genuine and honest because there isn't any profit motive in it that there isn't any sort of self-seeking behavior there and that she's inherently better she's better than elizabeth Mm -hmm. and she's better for luke wilson's character yeah okay so that's one thing I don't actually know that Wes Anderson is like doing that specifically. I think that or might even be purposefully. I think again, yes. I think that might be a little bit incidental. Like that's kind of a trope of romances that exists in cinema and make of that what you will. The other thing that I found myself thinking was maybe he wants this to be awkward. Maybe he wants this to feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Maybe he wants me to be looking at this man who we, you know, from the surface, he's attractive, he's young, he's kind, he's, you know, bright and thoughtful and has some sort of a moral center, particularly stood up next to Owen Wilson's character. But maybe we are meant to know ultimately he's still a fucking weirdo and he's still like kind of nuts and gets to do whatever the fuck he wants. And that should feel awkward to us. Yeah. And this, I think, you know, this particular read on it, I think calcifies the argument that this is all intentional in terms of Anderson's presentation that he has sympathy for these characters, but acknowledges them all as completely delusional. Uh, I like that reading much better. Me too. It makes way more sense to me that way to to understand all of these people as very lost, uh, very alienated people who get by the end some semblance of the thing that they think that they need, despite the fact that it's very clear that all of it is is an illusion. To them, you and know, it's not satisfying for us either, right? No, Dignan finally gets the opportunity to be the leader, 
and it gets him in jail. Anthony finally finds a love that he thinks is fulfilling and it's with somebody who he doesn't really communicate with or see. And yet both characters seem quite pleased with the outcomes. Even Dignan in jail seems Mm -hmm. more or less okay with it. And there's also a part of me, and we can get into this, that reads kind of the slow motion walk away stuff at the end with Dignan that is meant to perhaps make us think that he has some lingering regret or that he's not quite happy. I actually think that that's Wes Anderson using a cinematic trope as sort of like a a form of obfuscation. I think ultimately where I land is that Dignan is quite pleased to be in jail um, and and actually feels very accomplished about it. Yeah. I mean, one of his last lines is, we did it though, didn't we? You know, he reflecting fondly on being swindled by by James Caan, um, who, by the way, also expertly cast. I, I Just thinking about imagining him as his same character from Thief <laughs> as yes. like an old man, still like still doing the same thing, but now just like, uh, you know, finding these goofball like punk kids and swindling them uh, is very satisfying to me. One of the best parts about this movie is not just James Caan, but specifically James Caan's costuming in He's this like film. He's like kimono and top knot. <laughs> and with- he has like a weird sort of like coated African necklace that he's wearing at yes. one point and he's in like Tevas and socks at a party. Like yeah. it's so good. Yeah, his his wardrobe in it is really wonderful. The scene where he is practicing karate with his associate rowboat is genuinely bizarre and also so funny. You you have no idea what it is, but it's like wonderful just, physical comedy on his part. He's doing a great job. It's it's just a, a pleasure to see him show up and do something here but yeah you know like i think that you're right at the end there the slow-mo which is a staple of anderson's work you know he utilizes it to my recollection and and basically everything i don't know if he still does Mm -hmm. i'm having a hard time recalling now but at least through the first decade of his career every single one of his films uh has a a slow-mo shot to end um but there's a look you're right that he gives that kind of starts to sow doubt in terms of like the confidence of Dignan's assertion that he like feels fulfilled in being the leader and having accomplished something, even being behind bars. Uh, but, but I, I do think that he, he genuinely believes that or is trying to believe that thing about himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that you mentioned that, that final shot actually adds a lot of texture that I otherwise, especially in retrospect, it, it, wasn't there for me, you know, because it, it just, it feels like a trope of an Anderson film, the way a lot of his stuff does. Precisely. Let's get lucky. Move, everybody move. Come on, let's go. Keep up the intensity. Two more. Two more. Come on. Burn dog, come in, burn dog. Copy. Move to your second position. Fast. Go. Do that. Move. Stop, stop, get it down. Go. Let's go, go, go. Where are you going? Come here, come here. Rendezvous at the checkpoint in six minutes, okay? Checkpoint. Any activity, bird dog? Negatory. We're all clear. Good. It's supposed to be. Applejack, talk to me. What's going on? Applejack, talk to me. Somebody's coming out of there. Go back. Look. 
Christ. So hold it right there, guys. Stay right there. Freeze. Come this way. Freeze. Come here. Come here. Help against this wall. Come here. Come here. Help against this wall. Move. 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 Don't move. Move. Right here. Right here. So just look at the ceiling. Just look at the Help against the wall. What are you doing here? We work here. You're always at lunch now. Not always. Yes, always. Okay, let me think. Time. Jesus, what the hell are you doing here? No walkie-talkie, bro. Man, shh, shh. Two minutes. Okay. Put on your mask. Put on your mask. You've already seen our faces, Dickens. Don't worry about it. Put on your mask. Um, I would be remiss while we're on the subject of cast members to not mention sweet uh, Kumar Palana, uh, who plays Kumar in this film. Uh, Indian man who is the father of a man who owned a cafe that the boys used to frequent in Austin, if I'm not mistaken, maybe Dallas, one of the, t- in, in Texas, wherever it was that they were. Um, but they loved him so much that they cast him in this movie. He shows up later on as Mr. Little Jeans in Rushmore. He's Pagoda in Royal Tenenbaums. Yes. Um, he, yeah, he, he winds up in, in these fun little, you know, what, what are pretty substantial roles in some of the films, but otherwise just like little cameos. I think he's delightful. He wound up, in his 80s, becoming like a movie star. He was in Wes Anderson movies, and he also had a a pretty substantial role in uh, The Terminal, the Tom Hanks and Catherine Zeta-Jones film. Also a delight in there playing the same kind of character. And he's not given much to do, but every single thing that comes out of his mouth just like puts a smile on my face. It's really good. (laughs) Like when, when he's, you know, kind of like, playing sort of like senile and and forgetting where he is and who people are and can't crack the safe and and they're leaving and he has just this like utter regret on his face and is just saying i blew it man i lost it i lost it. i lost it man i lost my i lost my cool he's <laughs> he's just so funny um i i really adore him and like all of the little like minor players in here that show up in wes anderson's later work like uh the the bookstore associate later becomes one of the one of the teachers at Rushmore in his mm-hmm. next film. They're they're all over the place. You know, he has his regular cast of characters, but but Kumar Palana is one uh that I I just cherish and treasure and think he's just immensely funny without having to try. And he has a proto uh Steve Zissou look uh for their big heist. He's in a jumpsuit and a beanie with a snow uh a pom pom on top of it. Yes. And it's it's essentially what Bill Murray's character wears that entire film. Yeah. We were actually pointing this out on this watch too. Uh, the allusions to what would become Zissou. There's a, a photo of Jacques Cousteau on the wall at the warehouse during the party that Mr. Henry is throwing on the eve of the heist. Um, and then in, in Rushmore too, of course, uh, one of the characters in there who's only spoken of as like an off-screen presence because he he passed away, the, the teacher, Olivia Williams, uh, husband was a deep sea researcher and explorer mm-hmm, right, as right. well, who I think actually in photographs is played by Owen Wilson, if I remember correctly. Um, I, I don't know. I'll have to check that. If it's not true, I'll cut this out. But exciting stuff. Very exciting stuff. <laughs> and I think really that's like all that I have to say on Bottle Rocket. I think that now might be a good time to transition to a conversation about Wes Anderson more broadly. Um, as we already mentioned, Carly. Not a huge fan of his work. Myself, I would say I am a fan on the wane. I would say that diminishing returns every time I sit down for a Wes Anderson movie uh, since I first started 
engaging with his work Mm -hmm. almost 20 years ago. And as we said at the beginning of the show, it's hard to articulate exactly what it is about his work that doesn't jive with people. And I think I figured out a little bit, at least as it pertains to why it doesn't work for you. Yes. And maybe this will help some other people articulate. Lay it on me. Uh, So there's the thing that Wes Anderson does that we've already talked about where he loves building his compositions around his characters against flat backgrounds and frames. Yes, he's like a postcard director. Exactly. And he builds flat compositions. It's it's a it's a technique that has been dubbed planimetric composition. Mm. So it is basically always building a composition, building a background that is flat in which the characters speak perpendicular to the camera or facing directly on it. It observes a lot of camera movements that are direct right angles. Mm -hmm. And when it pivots, it's only at 45 degrees up or down. It's Mm -hmm. a lot of more stationary camera. Again, tracking shots, yes, but the camera itself and its position is often fixed and just moves against these planes. Wes Anderson, I think, for a long time was accused of basically making animated movies with real actors, right? He does these cross sections in Steve Zissou. He does these like, you know, kind of shots where he has a very deliberately composed backdrop that the characters move left and right as if they're sort of scrolling around. And then he finally proved <laughs> proved all those people right by actually making stop motion films. Mm-hmm. Um, now he's done two. He's done Isle of Dogs and his first Fantastic Mr. Fox, which I think is terrific, actually. I actually, now that we're talking about it, that is also on my list of favorite Wes Anderson films. Yeah. And I, you know, I think what I enjoyed so much about it is that it finally felt like him carving out a niche in something that was like, oh, this is something that makes a ton of sense that you could have easily avoided for fear that your detractors would be proven right. And then you did it anyway, and it turned out being a, a really enjoyable experience. Yes. By any means. With a lot of emotional heft, too. Absolutely. Yeah, they're they're great. They're beautiful movies. They're sweet. I think those are good like family movies, quote unquote, too, you know. Um, But this planimetric composition that Wes Anderson uses is something that deliberately calls attention to itself. Most filmmakers avoid doing this in favor of more cinematic angles, things that are built around that sort of 180 degree line at an angle closer to 45 degrees back and forth, right? Like a a shot to shot is often kind of shot like over a shoulder at Mm -hmm. a specific angle to avoid these flat compositions. Wes Anderson is somebody who does it on purpose. He does it to call attention to the artifice. And as he's gotten deeper into his career, he has also built layers and echelons of artifice into his storytelling. Bottle Rocket doesn't really do this, but by the time we get to Rushmore, he has these curtains that he projects the months onto that open up onto each scene. Yes. And you can very clearly see that he has built curtains on a movie set and pulled them open to the scene. In The Royal Tenenbaums, it takes place as if it's in a book that has been checked out from a library and and each chapter sort of starts with these like chapter headings. Steve Zissou plays around a lot with like the film within a film kind of concept. There's a lot of like footage as if it were a very classic sort of underwater Jacques Cousteau nature documentary. And then when we get into things like The Grand Budapest Hotel, it is layers upon layers. It's a young lady who finds an author in old age who wrote the book of the Grand Budapest Hotel, which tells the story of him as a young man interviewing an old man who is the young man telling the story. 
that probably isn't exactly right in terms of the layers, but my, my meaning stands, right? That we get into a thing where without framing something explicitly as being a story being told the way that like a princess bride does it, mm-hmm. he's doing something very similar. He's letting us in on the fact that this is elaborate fantasy. This is artifice. And he does the same thing with his compositions and his aesthetics. Um, he often just pivots on a 90 degree line. He calls attention to the way that he is creating these worlds, the stop motion creatures in life aquatic and it really just the, the animation, the animation sequences that eventually bleed into his other movies like Moonrise Kingdom. It's all there to like call out the fact that somebody made this. It feels very storybook. Yes. It feels like a play production. It feels like a storybook. It feels like somebody creating something. And to an extent, I find that enjoyable as somebody who has a language for film and understands that film is a mechanism that is created by someone behind a camera and someone with a vision. It's interesting to watch and it's cool to see the way he creates that. But for somebody who watches movies to be immersed and to forget that it's an illusion, this can be hard. And we've had conversations about this on previous shows. (laughs) Yes. That you, Carly, are somebody who gravitates more towards a wholly immersive experience. That sometimes it's challenging when you feel like lore or world building or the artifice and structure and composition of something are keeping you at arm's length. And Wes Anderson breaks away from this every so often, most of the time when he is trying to land an emotional punch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think specifically of the end of Life Aquatic after doing these cross sections and these particular like flat compositions when the helicopter crashes. Yes. It's shot much more cinematically. It's shot on a handheld. It's shot at the level of the water. And it's devastating. And it's devastating as Owen Wilson's character dies. Yes. Spoilers for a 20 year old movie. (laughs) Um, And those things, you know, I think are becoming rarer in his work over time. Like we said, Bottle Rocket is a movie that has a lot of handheld, has a lot of these angles that aren't quite so deliberate, doesn't have compositions that are quite so fixed, doesn't want to play around an artifice, wants it to feel like it's a real world, even when the characters are acting foolish, right? It is a fantasy, but it's only a fantasy because these these young men get to treat their entire world like a fantasy because they are free of any sort of consequence of their actions, besides like a two-year prison stint in like minimum security. Right. Which, which uh, the character seems fine with, uh, by the way. Yeah, I think you totally hit the nail on the head here. I, I love being psychologized, by the way. <laughs> um, I was thinking specifically about a movie like Pan's Labyrinth, right? Which I immediately thought of as you were talking as a really great counter to a Wes Anderson type of artifice. That movie is complete fantasy, as Del Toro is wont to do. But done in a more traditional cinematic style and and despite the fact that it's very despite the fact that it feels also very much like a storybook it is kind of formally very much told in that way right that is a movie that i am just like completely and utterly devoured by and a lot of it does have to do with the fact that the camera angles and this sort of um this more kind of like positioning of the viewer in a way that inserts you physically and emotionally into the story um, that that is the language he's operating in despite the fact that there is nothing but fantasy in that film and I bawled watching that movie just like 
cried my fucking bones out of it's my a, body. It's a devastating movie. It's very, very sad. And yet here we are with a story that is for all intents and purposes more believable, right? Um, set amid a, a setting that is uh, more real world, finger quotes, mm-hmm. um, with characters who I could potentially align myself with sort of emotionally a bit easier or um, have, you know, similar experiences to, and yet still a film that I felt slightly at arm's length with for its entirety. And I think you're right. It is absolutely um, because of the ways in which he is creating artifice and reminding us that what we are watching is something artificial. And as you were talking, it made me think of, it made me think of an example in art history. There were these statues in ancient Greece of young men called Kuroi. And they are the sort of proto, think of any figure, uh, carved in marble or bronze or anything like that that we now know to be a statue of a man these are foundational these are these are the inception point um but they are young men who stood completely straight arms at their side no movement whatsoever these artists had not figured out a language to show a body naturally and resting in a way that felt organic um cut to something called contrapposto wherein an artist realized that a man's frame actually exists on kind of a zigzag axis and it's this idea that you are shifting your weight to one side of your hip and your shoulder is sort of balancing in the other direction and you're slightly turned at an angle. You're never standing straight on like these Kuroi. And this contrapposto thing blew the fucking statue making game wide open um, because it broke into this space of naturalism that artists had not previously been able to tap into. And it's all about the angles. And so I think like, as I'm pondering what you're saying, Koroi are beautiful and gorgeous and uh, interesting in and of their own right. And statues that come afterward that are playing with contrapposto and are able to express something more lifelike, more immersive, more connective are also special and important. But I might have a little bit of an easier time looking at the bronze statue, the boxer, who is hunched over, turned, uh, bleeding, and and full of angles than I do when I'm looking at a Koros, which I may not feel the same emotional connection to. So all that to say, I think... Some people are able to enjoy Wes Anderson's movies and actually um, connect with them in ways that he's wanting precisely because of the artifice. And I think for people like me who need something more emotionally binding, oftentimes through a formal quality, not just through a story or a character, those movies are harder to access. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic analogy. And 
I think that there's something that I enjoy about Wes Anderson films, which is that he almost sort of decides to operate at a handicap. You know, it, it, it's almost what it feels like where he tries his best to read something honest, read something genuine and human in terms of his emotions while also operating within that artifice. Whether or not he succeeds, I think is case by case. There are certainly films where I think he does a tremendous job with that. There are ones where I feel like he falls flat. But it is an interesting experiment to watch happen. You know, him approaching the artwork from a place of primitiveness. You know, building something that feels more like the sound stages of silent cinema, something that's built around the framework and idea of a theater, you know, before we learned about filmic language and these, you know, different ideas of montage and framing and, and angles and, and th that could create something that felt more immersive that cinema is capable of that the theater isn't. There's an appreciation there on my behalf, of course. Um, but again, it stands to reason that that would be something that might be difficult for people to buy into. And as I said at the, the top of the show, like in order to, I think, appreciate Wes Anderson for what he's doing and as an artist of the highest caliber, I think it's only fair to also reason that it's okay for people to dislike Wes Anderson. And so, you know, when we started this, I conceived that maybe Bottle Rocket would be the place that we could come to that would be the great equalizer that would finally help... Uh, for us to like see the light and say, yeah, Wes Anderson is really great. This is his best work, whatever. And, and you know, more of sort of a, a riposte against people who said, Wes Anderson, I, I, I don't get him. But as we watch this and as I investigate it more, I realize that like the, the real answer to this quandary is simply to say not liking something is acceptable, especially when it's something as adventurous and as specific as what Wes Anderson is doing. And that's really all I have on this. And I think that that is probably a great place for us to leave you for this week. Watch Bottle Rocket or don't. Watch other Wes Andersons or don't. Love him, hate him, fall somewhere in between. Uh, that is up to you. I will continue to admire his work. I'm actually, for one, looking forward to The French Dispatch at some point that I can watch it. Um, and we'll probably end up watching everything that man makes for the rest of his career. But that's our show for today. As always, you can follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Shout out to our capitalist overlord. Her name is Linda. And we will catch you all next time. Bye, everyone. <laughs>